Welcome to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast, a show helping you find better ways to live, run, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. The website for the show is paleorunner.org. Follow me on facebook.com slash runpaleo or on Twitter at runpaleo. The sponsor for the show is 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates. It's made from coconut, grass-fed whey protein, and a slow-releasing starch. To get 10% off your order, go to 3Fuel.com and use the promo code 3FOLSON. My guest today is Tim Noakes. Tim is a medical doctor and an exercise and sports scientist. He is author of Lore of Running, Waterlogged, and Challenging Beliefs. Tim is an all-around expert on running, and he has run over 70 marathons and ultramarathons himself. Tim, this is your third time back on the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Aaron. Privilege to be back with you. Tim, uh, it's always great talking with you because, uh, and, and reading your stuff as well, because I see you as a very careful thinker, and you always evaluate things very carefully before you get behind an idea. Um, can you, for people who are, are, aren't familiar with you, uh, which is going to be very few who listen to this show, but can you tell me a little bit about how you got interested in this idea of nutrition and this idea of how a high-fat diet could possibly be a healthy thing? Well, Aaron, it all goes back to the 12th of December, 2010. And I just finished writing the book Waterlogged, which it took me 30 years of research <laughs> okay. and about six years of writing. But it was a, it was a real epic. And it, it antagonized me to many of my colleagues because uh, I was saying things that were not acceptable in the profession. And mm-hmm. certainly within the American College of Sports Medicine, I was not a very popular person because I was saying that their dietary, gui- sorry, their drinking guidelines were wrong. And that was not very helpful for a lot of people who had spent a lot of time drawing up the guidelines and didn't understand how they'd been, been influenced by industry to come to their certain conclusions. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the, I, I woke in the middle, so I finished waterlogged that evening. And I sent it off to the publishers or for them to assess it and decide whether they re- how they were going to publish it. And in the middle of the night, I woke up and my brain said, you will get up tomorrow morning and you will run five kilometers or whatever, and you will run every day for the rest of your life, you see. So obviously, my brain had been thinking about things while I'd been writing and not running enough. So anyway, I went out and had a terrible run, and I suddenly realized how desperately unfit I was. And I said, something's got to give. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, you know, life is always about the small margins. I came home, I checked my emails, and there was an email advertising a book called The New Atkins for the New You, written by Westman, Finney, and Volek. Mm-hmm. And it lose six kilograms in six weeks without hunger. And I said, well, this is just more garbage. You know, we know you <laughs> can't lose weight without hunger. I've tried it. It doesn't work. Right. And then I suddenly saw their names. And I had forgotten that in the 1980s, they had done a study on the high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet. And we had done some studies also on low-carbohydrate, high-fat diets. Not as good as theirs, but we'd done some studies. Mm -hmm. And because of the theory, there was such a good theoretical reason why a high-fat diet should be healthy or should improve your performance. And we'd done it, but we kind of dropped it and, and lost interest in it. 
So I said, well, I know they're good scientists, so I'm going to go and buy their books. I went straight to our local bookseller about 15 minutes down the road and came back and started reading the book. And within one hour, I decided that's it. I'm never eating another carbohydrate in my life. <laughs> so I can be decisive, as you can gather. Yeah. And what that said was there are 150 studies showing the benefits of a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. And I said, but I'm a scientist. I know this is nonsense. How could there be so many studies and I not know about them? Yeah. And the reality is there were those studies, and I was just ignorant because we weren't being taught that. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, within, within a few weeks, my energy levels improved. I lost a whole bunch of minor medical conditions, and my running went back to what it was 20 years before. It was astonishing. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe and I suddenly got that same enthusiasm for running that I had when I first started running. Oh. And so the benefits were huge. And then my health started to improve because I discovered ultimately that I have type 2 diabetes. And now I'm treating it with the low-carb diet and, and medication. And my control is now pretty good. It's, it's almost perfect. So it's been a, a very, very exciting journey. And as I went along this journey, I started reading. And at first, I wasn't convinced that the science was there. Today, I've absolutely no doubt. I now understand why for many people, a low-carbohydrate diet is the only way they'll be able to maximize their health. Mm. So, you know, I, I mentioned that you're very, you're very careful uh, I, from... From the books I've read of yours, you're very careful about what you say. And, and I was reading Law of Running last night, and you actually talk about the high-fat diet quite a bit, a lengthy discussion in there. And at one point, but then at one point you do say, until the issue is resolved, it's best to keep an open mind. And the proven value of high-carb diets is that it prevents excessive weight gain. <laughs> so. <can> you- <laughs> That's amazing. So how did you go reverse your opinion on that? Was it personal experience Uh, or was it the studies that you read? Oh, well, it was personal experience and that was so amazing because, I mean, for the first time, for the first time that I can remember, I was never particularly heavy, but I put on a substantial amount of weight. Uh, but particularly in the last 15 years, if I look back at pictures of me in the 1990s, I was still pretty lean. And then I put on a substantial amount of weight. And whatever I tried didn't work. I just got fatter and fatter and fatter. And mm. so, but within, I, I actually did much better because what was really funny was I had to go to Sweden and speak to a whole bunch of elite athletes. Okay. So when I started on the diet, I thought, you know, if I can drop six kilograms in the next eight weeks, because I've had to go and speak to them in eight weeks. I'd be really happy. But in fact, I dropped 11 kilograms. That's 22 pounds in uh-huh. those eight weeks. And when I arrived in, in Sweden, I looked a totally different person. And I mean, I looked <laughs> almost like an athlete, not quite, but almost like an athlete again. Uh-huh. And anyway, I fooled the, I fooled the Swedes. <laughs> and, I'm now, <laughs> and I'm now another 10 kilograms lighter. So oh, that's it's been great. astonished. Yeah, and it's so easy to maintain weight. It's just, it's a pleasure. Not to be hungry because I was, I was perpetually hungry and, and now I'm never hungry. So it's just been amazing. Now, what do you think it is about the high fat diet that has helped you? Because uh, it, is it something to do with the brain? I know you focus on the brain a lot uh, in running and how important that is to regulating our, our speed and our fatigue. Is there something that's going on in the brain that's regulating your hunger better on a high fat diet? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's an apostat, you know, I mean, there is an apostat in the brain which regulates how much you eat and how much exercise you do. I think it monitors both. Yadkin, John Yadkin, who was the first guy who was anti-sugar in the 1970s, he's got a lovely paper, and I quote this all the time, where he put a group on, he asked them to eat to hunger on a high-fat or a high-carbohydrate diet. And on the high-fat diet, they eat, they ate 700 calories a day less. Mm. And they weren't hungry, and that was the key. And he noticed, and he reported that, that they didn't report hunger. They suddenly lost their hunger. So although we say that it's carbohydrates and fats that reduce hunger, I think it's the carbohydrates that drive hunger and make you overeat. And I, I think what's happened since the 1977 guidelines came out, mm-hmm. that we've just been, the brain has been taken over with this addictive carbohydrates, mm-hmm. and they just make us always hungry and you want to eat. And I think in time we'll show that the brain does change. The actual, even the, the cells in the, in the apostate may well change. Okay. And now, and it was really interesting, you know, we, we went out on Saturday night to a friend of mine who, and she's always been a more vegetarian type diet. And now she read our book, The Real Meal Revolution, and she wanted to cook from it. Mm-hmm. But she took the leanest, she took the leanest meats and fed us. And it was fantastic food, very, very tasty, but I came home hungry. Mm-hmm. So having eaten all this protein, I was still hungry, and I said, I had to go and eat cheese. Uh-huh. And I realized that for me, it's the fat that takes away my hunger. Okay. And so, and I think it's different for everyone. You know, for some people, it's the protein. But it's clearly, in my case, the fat is what drives my hunger. And as long as I'm eating lots of fat, I'm just not hungry. Right. You know, you mentioned in Law of Running, uh, towards the end of that chapter on energy uh, metabolism, that there's some people who just naturally genetically burn fat really well, and then there's some that burn carbohydrates a little bit better. Yeah. Do you think that there yeah. is, as far as running is concerned, that there's a big difference as far as how many carbs we can take in and process? Yeah, that's great. That's a great question. And, and I'm referring to Dr. Julia Goodicke's work in our laboratory. She did a PhD and then did subsequently lots of other work. But in her PhD, she showed that we took a group of quite good cyclists and at rest, some of them were burning fat completely and some of them burning carbohydrate almost completely. Mm-hmm. And when we exercised them, they still stayed the same. In other words, if you're dominantly a carbohydrate burner at rest, you remained a, you just increased the amount of carbohydrate you burned during exercise. And if you're predominantly a fat burner, you still remain predominantly a fat burner, although you'd burn a little more carbohydrate as you exercised. And we concluded it was genetic, but I'm not sure okay. that we really looked carefully enough at nutrition. And what, what we're looking at now is are the people who naturally burn lots of fat, is it they've naturally sort of gravitated to eating a higher-fat diet okay. because they discovered that was more acceptable for them or whatever. So I, although we said it was genetic, I'm sure there's a genetic component, but I also don't think we completely excluded the possibility that there were dietary differences. Okay. And, and a lot of times we're, we're told to override our natural tendencies to eat more fat because we think it's healthier to eat uh, more whole grains. So I think a, lot of, a big part of it is just kind of uh, getting out of your own way and listening to your body. At least for me, that was the case. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I was part of that group think, and, and as you correctly described, you know, we were just telling everyone to do what, what the U.S. government was telling us to do, and we just passed on that, that groupthink mentality. 
Yeah. And and now I've learned that grains are not the thing you want to eat. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, Tim, I recently spoke with Matt Fitzgerald on the show, and he says that a lot of this this uh, talk around different types of diets has to do with placebo effects and that uh, people can do just as well on a high-carb diet or a low-fat diet or whatever kind of diet they choose. Do you, you obviously disagree with that. Can you t- elaborate on that? Well, Matt Fitzgerald is not a, a scientist working with athletes all day today, and he's not a doctor working with patients because that is utter nonsense. And, you know, we have seen remarkable responses. For example, Bruce Fordyce, who won nine Comrades Marathons and is probably the greatest ultramarathon runner of all time in South Africa, a personal friend, and I got him on a high-carbohydrate diet in 1979, 1980, and we produced the world's first goo in 1982 or 33, and we commercialized it, and it was called FRN, Fordyce, Rose, and Noakes, and there's still a product around FRN. Mm -hmm. And he... He won nine races in, I think, 10 years. He, he missed one year. And he got progressively heavier. But, of course, we didn't realize that he was about two kilograms heavier. And then during his life, he's run 200 marathons or ultramarathons, but yet he still put 14 kilograms. And his running went terribly. He was hating running and really struggling. Okay. And then before I went on the diet, he actually went on the diet because another great comrade's runner, also put on weight, put on 16 kilograms, in other words, 34 pounds or more. Mm-hmm. And Bruce one day saw him and he was lean. He said, what have you done, Sean? And Sean said, I've just been on a diet. And Bruce said, well, that's not very helpful. But <laughs> all of a sudden, this went back and the train came back. Bruce Fordyce now runs, he was running 23 minutes for 5Ks. He's now running 17 minutes oh. for 5Ks at altitude at the age of 56. Now, Matt Fitzgerald might say that it's placebo. It is not. Bruce Fordyce could not run under 23 minutes on the high-carbohydrate diet because it has some detrimental effect. Another guy that I helped dropped his time in a 56K race by three hours. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Three hours. Because when he lost the weight and started eating his proper foods, he could start training and he was able to train 120 kilometers a week, like roughly, whatever, 60 or 70 miles a week. Okay. Before, he could only run 40 miles a week, and I doubled his training almost. And, of course, he benefited, but he had never, ever been able to train more. Okay. So, so Matt, fortunately, his, his new book is, is wrong. It's just absolutely wrong. Have you had and a chance to look at it yet? No, I've only just seen the reviews, unfortunately, okay. and I'm, I'm being a little unfair because I'm not I'm not giving him the, the, the benefit of actually having read the book, but, but the point is that there are some people, and I'm one of them, who are carbohydrate intolerant, and we just do not do well on carbohydrates. And until our profession and all athletes understand this, that there's this condition, insulin resistance, we will not be able to help the majority of the people. Mm. So, I mean, you know, like go to a marathon, and probably not the Boston, that's not a good one because there's a selected time, cutoff time. Right. But go to the average marathon in South Africa, and the people are there are a lot of fat runners. Okay. And why are they fat? They're fat because they're insulin resistant and they're eating a high carbohydrate diet. And they will never lose weight. They can double their training mileage. They will not lose weight. They have to fix up their nutrition. And the key is to cut the carbohydrates. 
Right. So this is a real phenomenon. This insulin resistance is a real phenomenon. And we can't will it away and say it doesn't exist because it is absolutely real. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim, I, I'd also... I'd also like to talk about um, as far as the energy depletion model of performance and, and whether a high-fat diet will help improve performance. Like you said it did for um, some runners that you know, uh, such as Bruce Fordyce. And actually, as yeah. I was reading last night, you mentioned that uh, Alaskan uh, husky dogs who do the Iditarod, that when they go on a high-carb diet, they perform worse. So maybe that there is quite a bit of individual difference there. Yeah, that's a lovely story because, you know, I went to the 1976 conference on the marathon in New York. It was the most famous conference that probably there's ever been held. And it was the first time we had all these world authorities. And, of course, that was just the time when we were all saying carbs, carbs, carbs. Because mm-hmm. we it was just becoming the sort of gospel. It, it had, Obviously, it had started already in 1969, but by 1976, it was the gospel. Okay. And I remember a guy getting up in the middle of this conference and saying, guys, I train dogs. And if you give the dogs carbohydrate, they can't run. They just stop. And we all said, that's nonsense. It's because you haven't done X, Y, and Z or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we got that that's, these are the experts. You don't tell an expert that he's wrong when you know nothing about it. But that's right. what we did. Yeah, and and of course we know that. Well, and dogs are the ultimate carnivores, so why would they want carbohydrates anyway? Right. Um, in your book, you talk about the energy depletion model of um, uh-huh. exercise, and what I'm wondering is, is if the energy depletion model is wrong, and and uh, well, well, maybe you could explain this better. But basically, it says that. At about 20 miles, you hit the wall because you run out of glycogen stores. Is that model correct? And if you're fat adapted, will you not hit the wall? Well, you shouldn't, you see. So, you know, uh, Jeff Olick is, you know, he's the world authority. And I've just written an article with him. And there he talks about the fact that, that a, a world-class ultra-distance runners, and they've measured in their laboratory, that they can burn fat at up to 1.7 grams per minute. Okay, And that provides enough energy to run a 2-hour 20 marathon. So theoretically, if you are fully fat adapted, you should be able to run at the speed required for a 220 marathon easily for 2 hours and 20 minutes, probably for longer, much longer, because you've got so much fat in your body. So according to the energy depletion model, if you're probably fat adapted and you are an elite athlete, there's no problem you could run any race at any distance purely on fat without needing much carbohydrate. So we then wrote, read an, wrote an editorial, and there are the two models, you, you, the carbohydrate model, and what we observe from our runners in South Africa is that if they are carbohydrate adapted, the longer the race, the more carbohydrates they have to stuff into their bodies near the end. Okay. So you have people like the Gatorade Sports Science Institute telling us we have to eat 100 grams of carbohydrate every hour <laughs> when we've run a couple of hours. And that's ludicrous <laughs> because you're, when you run for four hours, you're running slowly, relatively slowly. Mm-hmm. And by Jeff Olek's calculations, that should be provided by fat. Right. But if you're, fat adapt, if you're carbohydrate adapted, you simply aren't pre- used to burning fat. And so, theoretically, you would run into trouble. And then you just have to 
stuff in these carbohydrates at 100 grams an hour, which is astonishingly hard work and pretty damaging <laughs> for your health. Right. So the, the model we propose is why bother? Adapt yourself to fat and you can run any distance on fat and you won't ever need to take any carbohydrates. So, so from advising runners in South Africa, it's clear to me that there are at least two types. And the one type is like Bruce Fordyce. He now can run 56 Ks kilometers, that's 35 miles, mm -hmm. without breakfast, a big fatty meal the night before, no breakfast, and water the whole way. And the, the first time he did it, he came to me afterwards and he said, Tim, I wonder how good a runner I would have been if I had eaten this way and raced this way in the 1970s and the 1980s. Right. And, his, and his meaning was, I think I could have done even better. And he set world records in those days. Yes. Yeah. So he recognized in himself, that he's got this huge capacity to burn fat, but he was always short-circuiting because I put him on a high-carbohydrate <laughs> diet. <laughs> but what, what so I'm wondering… What I'm wondering That's is, won't you still get tired, though? I mean, you're still going to get tired at some point, right? Because your central governor is going to tell you to stop. So how does, yeah. how does that play a role with the high-fat diet? Yeah, well, then, you know, the, we don't know all the inputs into the brain that are slowing you down and making you run at a particular speed. Okay. Uh, Bruce specifically said that he tested himself on that race. And up the hills near the end, he went as hard as he could. Okay. And he said he had plenty of energy left. But the other group of patients, so, so you get people like Bruce Fordyce who will never take carbohydrates again in the races that he runs. There's another group who tell me they have to have about 200 grams of carbohydrate the day before the race, and they do need to take some carbohydrate during the race, but not 100 grams an hour, maybe 10 to 15 to 20 grams an hour near the end of the race, Okay, which is completely contrary to what we used to say. We used to say eat 600 grams for three days, the last three days for the marathon, and then eat 50 grams minimum per hour during the race. Okay. So this is a complete departure from that. Yes. And, and I just tell people, you know, cut the carbs, become fat adapted, and then see. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, you can't make the marathon without taking carbohydrates, we'll take some. And then experiment and see how much you need to take. Mm -hmm. And, and and, gen and if they're like me, they're insulin resistant and they put on weight and now they lose weight and they've started running better, they will need very little carbohydrate either before or during these races. And is that carbohydrate mainly just to replace liver, liver glycogen and to prevent hypoglycemia or is it actually going to the muscles as well? That's a great question because we're now currently researching that very question and Reading the literature, it does turn out that someone has done this experiment before, almost in 2002, and I forget the guy's name, but they had fat-adapted athletes, and then they gave them carbohydrates, and they found they respond totally differently to people who are carbohydrate-adapted. If you're carbohydrate-adapted and you take in carbs, you burn it. You burn it as part of your fuel because your muscles are already pretty full. Mm. If your muscles are, gly are glycogen-depleted but you're fat-adapted, you just, the carbohydrate goes straight into the muscle and you continue to burn fat. You don't switch off fat metabolism if you're fat adapted. Whereas okay. if you're carbohydrate adapted, you switch off fat metabolism, sorry, carbohydrate, you, know, fit, you switch off fat metabolism immediately. So then what happens is if you are fat adapted and you take in 200 grams of carbohydrate, it goes straight to the liver and muscle. It doesn't get burnt. So you store all those 200 grams. Okay. Whereas if you're carbohydrate adapted and you take 600 grams, you don't store all of that 600. You have to burn a lot of it. 
and okay. which, which is really interesting. Another point we found from our studies is that that if you're fat adapted, you burn some carbohydrates during the exercise, but you burn very little carbohydrate during the rest of the day. So you save your carbohydrate for use during exercise. But if you're carbohydrate adapted, you actually burn most of the carbohydrate during the rest of the day. You mm. don't even burn it during the exercise. Okay. So you're eating this excess of carbohydrate, which you have to burn off during the rest of the day. Right. And so it's clear that that most people on high carbohydrate diets are eating way more carbohydrate than they actually need. And they could restrict their carbohydrates dramatically and still have more than enough carbohydrate for their exercise needs. Okay. And someone listening to this might be thinking, well, what does it matter if I burn carbs or burn fats? Does it make a difference? Let's say they're already at a healthy weight. Um, should they, is there an advantage to burning mostly fats during the day? Yeah, I think there is. Particularly during races, you just don't have to worry about bringing, taking carbs with you. And the, the people have really tell us that's a huge advantage. So if you're going out to do an adventure race over three days, you don't have to worry about packing in all the carbs. Mm-hmm. And the same, even if you're running a marathon, you know, you don't need the carbs. It doesn't matter if, they, if the people don't provide it in the race. You don't need it. Okay. And it's, it's a massive advantage, I think. And you don't have to spend all the time eating. So, <laughs> so I think there are advantages biologically, I worry about all the carbohydrate. It affects your teeth. And as we've indicated, if you're insulin resistant, every time you take carbohydrate, you spike your insulin and it's damaging your health. Mm-hmm. So I must just add this proviso, you know, that there's a study out in one of the, from one of the U.S. universities recently showing marathon runners with bad coronary artery disease. Yes. Even though they'd run all these marathons. And their, car, their risk factors were no worse than the sedentary group, but their arteries were much worse. Mm-hmm. And we have to start thinking about that. I, ironically, at the 1976 New York City Marathon Conference, I was the, we presented data of marathon runners with heart disease, okay. and it caused a big furor. So I've been in this debate for a long time. But it really worries me when you've got healthy marathon runners with no risk factors and they've got bad coronary arteries. And you really have to wonder if this high-carbohydrate diet and eating more carbohydrates than anyone else is not perhaps the cause of our arterial damage right. in these athletes who we thought should be healthy. And, and the answer is they might not be healthy because they're eating too much carbohydrate. And in association with lots of exercise, that might be, unharm- that might be unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, you know, uh, another thing I found interesting that seems to be a bit of a paradox is that you wrote in your book, people like Mark Allen and I think uh, Paula newby Frazier and wow. Arthur Newton, they all followed a higher, like Arthur Newton, you said, used to eat a high fat breakfast before an u- ultra marathon, which would be, a, seem to be a paradox. But uh, it, it, even people like Mark Allen said he, he consumed only about 40% carb diet, even up to uh, uh, Ironman triathlon. So, obviously, it's been working for quite a while, for the athletes at least. Absolutely. If you look back, you'll see before 1969, all athletes were eating the normal diet. Whatever the normal population was eating in their area, they were eating that. And in Britain and in South Africa, it was a high meat diet. Mm-hmm. And all the comrades runners before Bruce Fordyce, all the winners were high-fat, high-protein eaters. And I was responsible for changing Bruce <laughs> through the high, <laughs> high carbohydrates. And so when he won and we were producing this carbohydrate drink and FRN goose and so on, 
that changed everything. Uh-huh. But that's the first one. Now, let's get back to Paula Newby Fraser. She was a great friend of mine, and in 1983, she went to America and became an American citizen and then became the most famous Ironman triathlete of all time. She won the Ironman in Hawaii eight times. And she told me a few months ago, she said, Tim, the most important advice I ever got in my whole career was you told me to eat a high-fat diet. <laughs> so, so this is 1983. And I thought, Paula, did I actually ever tell you that? <laughs> But you see, that came out just when Jeff Ehrlich was doing those experiments. Okay. And we were doing our own studies. And, and what I told her was eat more fat. I didn't tell her to cut the carbs, you see, but, but she interpreted it as that. Okay. And she was always a high-fat eater. And in races, she didn't take carbs okay. or much carbs. She, she went for the fats and the oils and the nuts. And, and I asked her why. And she said, well, I'm from Zimbabwe, as I am too. Mm-hmm. And she said, we were brought up in Zimbabwe eating lots of meat. And we used to eat this dried meat, the jerky, which we call in South Africa biltong. Mm. And she said, I was always eating biltong. And I used to eat biltong in the Ironman. And so, wow. and I saw her a few, mon- a few months ago, as I've said, and she looks fantastic. She's 50. She's as athletic and as lean as she was when she was winning the Ironman. And she's not, her weight has been absolutely stable since she left school. It was... <laughs> She only put on weight. She did put on weight when she was at university. Oh. And then it was then she started eating the high-fat diet and lost the weight and did the, the start of the triathlons. Okay. And Mark Allen, I think he ate much more protein and fat than he'll ever admit to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> because he was coached by Phil Maffetone, and Phil was way ahead of me in, mm. many, in everything. But in diet, he was way ahead. And he was promoting this high-fat diet already in the 1980s. Yeah, so, right. so I think Mark Allen, I think he had some sponsorships from, from the carbohydrate makers. Okay. And in fact, I was actually looking through it, and he said, my diet was so different from everyone else's that I was too embarrassed to tell them what I was actually eating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've actually had Phil Maffetone on the show, and he, he claims that Mark Allen was following basically a paleo-style diet, um, eating yeah. those healthy fats and things like that. But you you recently came out with an essay with Jeff, Jeff Volok and Steve Finney uh, in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, and I saw this article by Ambie Burfoot today on Runner's World, and he talks about how you guys say that there's not enough research that's been done on a low-carb diet and that there's more that needs to be uncovered. Uh, what kind of research needs to be done yet to figure out uh, really what the best way to go about uh, fueling for a marathon is on a low-carb diet? Yeah, Aaron, the problem is that the, the industry promotes high carbs. So if you want to do research, you'll get it for funded for high carbs. You won't get funding for doing low-carb diets. And that's what Jeff Volek's problem has been. He's one of the best scientists in, in exercise sciences in America. He's done unbelievable research. I had to review his research uh, a few years ago for a position he'd applied for. And I said, this man deserves a Nobel Prize because – he has done the work on the benefits of a low-carbohydrate diet on health, and he's sewn it up. He's just shown exactly why you should be eating a high-fat diet. But he obviously won't ever get it because his work isn't published in the New England Journal because it's too controversial. But it's not controversial. It's beautiful work, and the conclusions are very clear. Mm. So he's done, done fabulous work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and what he was saying is that you can burn so much fat – 
when you're exercising that you really don't need to do anything else if it's a long enough exercise and the intensity is low enough. But what, what, I, what we realized in the review, which was my contribution, was I looked at all the papers that had been done. And in fact, I think we've done four or five of the papers. There are only 12 papers on low-carbohydrate diets and exercise performance. And I think five of them come from our lab. Okay. And the rest are Bolek and one or two other people. So 12 studies. I mean, how can you ever think you know anything if you've only done 12 studies? And all these studies are on endurance performance in athletes who've only adapted for a week or two. No one has studied a six-month or a year adaptation. And I can tell you from my own experiences, you really need six months to really get to know this way of eating. Okay. That's the first. The second point is we, we haven't done on other activities. And so I know you asked a question about endurance performance, but we haven't done what is it like if you're doing an intermittent activity. Mm. So... For example, we converted the Australian cricket team. And cricket is is a relatively low-intensity activity, but you have to concentrate incredibly hard. And we converted one player who's now the best in the world in his batting, and he told me – and he has to sprint. Every time he hits the ball, he has to sprint like a like a baseball player. Mm-hmm. He said, I bat all day. I never get tired anymore. <laughs> and so, wow. so he has a sprint activity, and the guy said, I don't get tired anymore. And he's the best in the world at the moment at his position. And, and that's the point, that we've been so focused on endurance performance trials in the laboratory lasting 10 kilometers or 20 kilometers. We haven't a clue what happens elsewhere. We, we're the only people in the world who've done a 200K time trial, cycling time trial. Okay. And fat adaptation for one week. And there were differences, but we, unfortunately, we had two small numbers. And, the, and we also showed that if you were insulin resistant and you were on the start, you'd seem to do much better on the high fat diet. Mm. Whereas if you're a high carb eater and you were not, a, not insulin resistant, it didn't seem to do that, that much effect. So that's what we have to tease out. We have to A, adapt people for six months. And then B, we have to say, okay, you're insulin resistant or you're not insulin resistant. And then we've got to tease that out as well. So we haven't scratched the surface. Mm-hmm. But yet, what do the scientists say? They say there's no evidence. But as Ambi Burford said, of the 12 studies, only two produced a negative outcome. Right. The other 10 either were in favor of the high-fat diet or there was no difference. Okay. So the idea that the high-fat diet's going to impair performance is not really brought out by the data, except for the one study which we did, and it clearly showed a negative effect. I absolutely accept that. But again, that they'd only adapted for a week. Uh-huh. And then the point that Jeff Olick makes is there are so many other adaptations that occur in your body when you, when you go into ketosis that that might allow you to train harder and recover better. Mm. And I get reports back all the time of athletes saying, you know, I ran this race. I didn't train as hard, and gee, I did better than I've ever done, mm-hmm. even though I hadn't trained as So there's something there which we also need to tease out. So as Jeff said, you know, we just haven't scratched the surface on, on the low-carb, high-fat diets and exercise performance. We really haven't a clue. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, does Jeff Bullock subscribe to the central governor model of fatigue? Uh, we've never really discussed it, actually. Uh, okay. we're, so <laughs> we're so focused on the carb story and, and trying to get people with insulin resistance to eat this diet that 
Uh, okay. So, Tim, uh, it's, it's, it's evening in South Africa right now. Uh, what have you had to eat so far today? That's a great question. I went out with my wife this morning, and I had eggs hollandaise uh, with the hollandaise sauce on a bed of mushrooms and aubergine, and I had double serving of bacon, and I had a cappuccino. I had a cup of tea at lunchtime, and I haven't eaten again. It's 5 o'clock, and I have absolutely no hunger. Wow. So that was my breakfast, and I've had no hunger. And this evening, my wife will prepare something. It'll be probably fish, probably salmon, and lots of vegetables. And that's what I eat today. And it's, it's just amazing how lovely it is that, <laughs> that I, haven't, I haven't even had a snack today. Mm-hmm. I've been pretty busy. So the first time I thought about food was when you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been able to uh, convince your wife and kids to try this diet? Absolutely. My, my father died of type 2 diabetes. He had all the complications, and it was tragic to watch him die. And I was in the complicit. I didn't know. a medical doctor. I didn't know the treatment he was getting was killing him. In other words, he was told to eat a high-carbohydrate diet, and that killed him. Mm. And had I known the knowledge now that I have now, I probably could have spared him those complications. So mm-hmm. it turns out that that he actually ate healthy because he from he was brought up on lots of meat, but but yet he didn't eat much carbohydrate. He didn't eat processed foods. Okay, and he didn't eat sweets. Yet he got diabetes at a, an older age than I do, which is astonishing because here I was running all these marathons. So what I realized was that we have the, the worst genes possible for diabetes. And and he got the worst form of diabetes, but it took him longer to get it because he was eating a high-protein, high-fat diet. I did all the running, which he never did, and I got the disease at a young age because, in my view, I ate so much carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. And I've got ever the genes and are both on this and and my daughter particularly has benefited hugely from the start because she she said I've got a carbohydrate intolerance and also sugar and she said I've cut sugar and I've cut people I don't eat sugar and I don't eat carbs and her health has improved immensely she's you know late thirties so she's benefited and my son has benefited as well. That's and my wife is profoundly insulin sensitive because she comes from different genes, no, no diabetes, but she's also benefited from eating this way, although she's not as strict as the rest of us. Okay. So she could have uh, the, the odd uh, sweet potato here and there? Absolutely. So she, she definitely has odd, odd chocolate occasionally. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, if people are interested in trying this, do they have to go all in at once or can they just gradually make their way to it? You know, I think it depends on how sick you are and how, how obese you are and how, in, how, how bad your, your sugar addiction is. If you have a sugar addiction, you tend to be heavier and even morbidly obese. And sugar has to go. It has to go completely, utterly. And there may be different ways, but you have to cut all the processed foods because they're just full of sugar. Mm. And slowly wean yourself of adding the sugar to your drinks. And then you have to wean yourself slowly of the, the sugary drinks. And that took me 14 months. 
for me to finish a run and drink water it took me 14 months not to look for the Gatorade or the Coca-Cola or whatever, the high sweet drinks. It took me a long time to get rid of that addiction. Um, I think that if you're really sick and you, you've got to go, I think you have to go cold turkey and go right down to 50 grams a day and go through the withdrawal symptoms. But if you're a marathon runner and you let's say you're two or three or four kilograms overweight, it's, you're never going to have to go down to 25 grams a day. Go down to 250, go to 200. Go down to 150 and see how you feel. Okay. Definitely had runners who've gone all the way down to 50 grams and have said it's a disaster. I can't run on that. But they shifted up to 175, 150 grams a day and they're flying and they say, I've got all the benefits. Okay. So I think that you have to find where you lie. And the more unhealthy you are, the, the less carbohydrates you have to eat and the more strict you have to be. Mm-hmm. But if you're not insulin resistant and you've not got a weight problem and you're not always hungry, you can have 200 or 200 grams of da- a day. That's fine. Okay. Uh, Tim, you've got a, a new book out called The Real Meals Revolution, and I haven't been able to, t- to get it on Amazon yet. Is that going to come over to the U.S. soon? You know, uh, Aaron, that book was produced locally, and we thought it would sell 3,000 copies, luckily, and maybe 10,000. And the 10,000 went in the first week. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> we have been struggling to catch up demand. And it's now sold 100,000 copies. And as a writer yourself, you'll know that that's quite an achievement in a small country. In South Africa, we claim there are only 250,000 readers of books. So we've already covered nearly half of the reading population in South Africa. So it's been an astonishing success. And naturally, people say, well, it's and we're struggling to find publishers overseas, but we will get there. Okay. In time, we'll get the book overseas. We don't want to just write to the book easily away. We would like to find a publisher who's going to work with us to, to produce another really good product and, and have the sort of same civil, same sort of uh, reach that the books had in South Africa. It is, it is, literally started an eating revolution in this country. Fantastic. I, I, obviously, you don't follow South Africa, what's happening in South Africa, but there are only two topics that anyone talks about. The one is the real meal revolution, and the other is the tragic Oscar Pistorius trial. Mm-hmm. Those are the two topics <laughs> of dinner conversation throughout South Africa, and that's been the case for the last 12 weeks or so. Okay. Okay. I also noticed that you started a podcast. That's great. It's fun to hear uh, you answer some of those questions. I, I encourage people to check that out on iTunes. Um, have you ever thought about starting a blog so that we could read some more of your writing? You know, Aaron, I, I would love to. We do have an original eating website, which I'm, I'm so bombarded at the moment. Literally, this book has had such an impact in South Africa that I'm re- receiving 40 emails a day or 50 emails a day, which I have to respond to. And one, I've got to catch up and find a way of addressing that. Once I can do that, I'll start blogging much more. Okay. So it's in the future. I'm, I'm due to retire from my current work at the end of the year, and then I'm completely revitalizing or rechanging my structure of my life, mm. and I will, I will do much more blogging because that, that's what will be a priority. But at the moment, I'm just really struggling to, to cope with all the demands on my time. Okay. So when you, when you retire, uh, are you no longer going to be doing any scientific studies? 
No, absolutely. I'm going to be doing even more scientific studies. Okay. But I'm just going to be focusing on insulin resistance because that's the, that's the condition that is the most important condition in medicine today. It's much more important than any other condition because it's the root cause of hypertension, diabetes, obesity, gout, and the abnormal cholesterols that cause heart disease. They're all linked directly into insulin resistance. And unfortunately, the message, which really comes from Stanford and chap called Jerry Raven, it's his work. And again, he has another man who deserves the Nobel Prize. That's an area that I want to look at, insulin resistance. And the other area, which we won't get into because there are other people, guys at Harvard, Alessio Fasano, another guy who should get the Nobel Prize, Dr. Fasano from Harvard, okay. for describing the leaky gut syndrome. I mean, that's, it's absolutely genius work. And those are the two conditions, insulin resistance and the leaky gut. That is the future of medicine. Okay. And so we'll be looking to do insulin resistance because I understand the disease. I have it myself, and I'm going to be putting my effort into starting a, an institute to, to research that. Okay. And building that up in the next next few years. Great. Well, Tim, it's been a pleasure speaking with you again, and I'm I'm so glad to have you back on the show. Um, is there anywhere where you would direct people to go to find your work? Well, you could try the the originaleating.org. Originaleating.org. That's kind of my story about how uh, I got into this nutrition story. And there's quite a few blogs, uh, not blogs, but there are quite a few uh, YouTube documentaries that I put out. Okay. So if people get my if you want my views on nutrition, they're very well covered there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of my work, people ask, how do you find it? That that's difficult. I don't really have a repository for all that stuff. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, I, uh, Laura of Running is still a great is still a great book. I was reading it this week, and uh, you know, there's actually quite a bit in there about the high fat diets, and you mentioned in there that you've got to see, try it and see what works for for you. So, Tim, it's great talking with you. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much indeed, Aaron. Thanks for listening to another Paleo Runner podcast. If you like podcasts, you're also going to like Audible.com. Audible has over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Kindle, Android, or MP3 player. You can even burn a CD of the audiobook if you like. It's a great way to learn while you're driving in the car or cleaning up around the house. One of the great things about Audible is that if you decide that you don't like the book you've downloaded, you can actually exchange it for another one. They want you to be happy with your order. If you'd like to get a free audiobook download, sign up at audibletrial.com slash paleorunner. You'll get a free audiobook download that you can keep regardless of whether you continue with the service or not. So go to audibletrial.com slash paleorunner. Thanks for listening.